Welcome to this American Journal of Gastroenterology podcast. I'm Brian Lacey, professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic Jacksonville and co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, along with Brennan Spiegel, my co-editor-in-chief from Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. We're doing something different for this podcast, meaning that I am delighted to be speaking today with Dr. Brennan Spiegel, who, as I already mentioned, is co-editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology and also professor in residence of medicine and public health at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center and the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA in Los Angeles. We are going to use a recently published review article in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, COVID-19 in the Digestive System, written by Drs. Ma, Kong, and Zhang from Sichuan University in China as a forum to discuss gastrointestinal manifestations of COVID-19. For our listeners, this article is now available online and will be in print in July of 2020. Brennan, welcome. What a pleasure. This is something new. We've never had one editor interview another for a podcast. Glad to do it. Glad to be here. Yeah, this will be fun. So, Brennan, can you help set the stage for our listeners? Why is this topic so important? Yeah, this is obviously critical because we're in a a pandemic. But when COVID first emerged, we all sort of thought this is mainly a respiratory illness, right? It, it, It affects the lungs and and maybe some other organs, but the gut really wasn't the focus. In fact, when the first paper came out, big paper in the New England Journal describing COVID-19, it was thought at that time that diarrhea was very uncommon. In fact, so uncommon that it might even rule out COVID-19. So those of us in GI thought, well, this probably isn't something that's going to affect us very much. Well, that story has changed an awful lot in in the last few months. I think that's why it's important. So, and on that note, Brennan, considering the importance of this topic and how it's vital to get information out to our listeners, how many articles have we received here at the American Journal of Gastroenterology on this topic? Yeah, I mean, we currently, as of today, and we're recording this on uh, the, what, the 12th of June, so this will change by tomorrow, but we currently have 203 submissions to the Red Journal uh, and, and counting. So, we have been working very hard to stay on top of these as best we can. Sorry to those of, uh, those of the authors listening who feel like we may have been a little bit behind, but we're doing our best to read these and keep up with all the other papers coming in too. All right, great. Thank you. I know it's been a, a kind of a tricky triage process. So going back to what you just said a minute ago was when COVID-19 was first being described, it was thought to only affect the respiratory system. Before we discuss the clinical manifestations of COVID-19, Can you explain why this virus might be able to affect the GI system and the biliary system? Right. So we know going way back to SARS-CoV-1 that this coronavirus uses the ACE2 receptor to invade cells of the body, usually along epithelial cells lining tubes like the, the respiratory system. And if you look at these review articles that talk about ACE2, for example, recent paper in the New England Journal, talk about how it's expressed in the lungs and expressed in other organs, but they don't ever seem to mention the gut. Yet, it turns out the intestinal system is actually the densest expression of ACE2 anywhere in the body, by, by in some cases, a hundredfold on a log scale. So what that means is if the virus can get through the stomach, and make it through the acid layer, for example, then it can invade the intestinal tract. And we all know the intestinal tract has a tremendous surface area 
And if the virus can replicate in that surface area, it could potentially spread elsewhere in the body as well. Okay, Brennan, great. Thank you for the great basic science and kind of underpinning for why this is so clinically relevant. And so you briefly mentioned it as well before, but let's go through what are some of the most common gastrointestinal symptoms of coronavirus. I mentioned diarrhea before, and, and we're now seeing that diarrhea affects about 20% of people with COVID-19. Now, we don't have a, a perfect understanding of that because most of those case series are people coming into the hospital with respiratory symptoms primarily, and then they get tested. They're positive, and they go back and find out, oh, they had diarrhea too. What we are now learning, though, is there's probably a much larger group who just had GI symptoms out in the community who never got tested. So we don't really know the true denominator, but we know diarrhea is common. There are other symptoms, nausea, vomiting, and just low appetite, which is not a very specific symptom, but skipping meals, anorexia, also very common. So about half of people overall will have one or more GI symptoms. So thinking about these symptoms, Brennan, you know, many of these symptoms are really quite nonspecific. How can our listeners use these symptoms and other signs or other symptoms to determine whether a patient truly is coronavirus? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's been some recent new evidence. There was a study in Nature Medicine that looked at the results of over two and a half million people who completed at-home surveys using an app to identify the symptoms that really distinguish COVID versus no non-COVID. And it turns out that lack of taste and lack of smell are, although not necessarily the most common symptom, very specific for COVID-19. So if you combine lack of taste and lack of smell with diarrhea, and one study suggests that GI symptoms tend to correlate with this anosmia, this lack of smell and lack of taste. So if you have diarrhea plus lack of taste, lack of smell, with fever, with fatigue, and low appetite, that symptom complex is very specific and predictive of COVID-19. That's great. Really kind of increases your pretest probability. I don't want to sidetrack this discussion with an extended review about diagnostic testing because that in itself is a separate lecture or podcast. But could you provide our listeners with your perspective on who to test and when they should be tested and, and the ideal test if you think we have one? Right. Well, the ideal test is 100% sensitive and specific <laughs> uh, at any stage of the disease. And of course, what we've learned is there is no test that's anywhere near that for COVID-19, not yet. And it depends on at what point the test is being administered. So early on, when somebody is just a few days into their symptoms, um, the nasopharyngeal swab remains a pretty sensitive and specific test. Not perfect, but it's in the 80 to 90% range for those early days. But after about a week, the sensitivity and specificity of the nasopharyngeal swab and respiratory samples begins to drop off pretty fast, 70, 60, 50. And that's the point where people who had GI symptoms primarily may actually be coming in to seek care because they didn't realize at first that they might have COVID. They didn't have a cough, didn't have shortness of breath. Maybe they now develop it and they're you know, 10, 14 days in. So they may end up testing negative if we just look at the nasopharyngeal swab. So this is the opportunity for antibody testing, IgM, IgG begins to rise around two weeks in, but also stool testing, which is still not widely available in this country, although it is widely used in China. 
And we've published a couple studies in our journal looking at stool testing, and it actually starts to rise the stool positivity just as the nasopharyngeal swab is dropping. So anyway, long answer to your question. I wish I had more time, but that, those are the facts as we understand them. And right now, we just what it comes down to is the pretest probability is so important, like you just said, that if you think somebody has COVID, you might as well just ignore the test and, and assume that they've got it. Great. Brennan, you were involved in a study with investigators from Wuhan who brought to light the finding that diarrhea can be a presenting symptom of COVID-19. Can you tell our listeners how to put that symptom in perspective? Should we test all of our patients who call us and say they have new onset diarrhea? Do they have COVID-19? Yeah, so this kind of gets a little bit to what we were discussing before. What is the right symptom combination that makes you really raise your pretest probability just from symptoms alone? Obviously, by, you know, their lab tests, if somebody's CRP or ESR is sky high, then you have to wonder what's going on. But just from symptoms alone, obviously diarrhea is a very common symptom in the community. And if, you know, every person with diarrhea need to get tested for COVID, we couldn't keep up with that. We'd cause a lot of fear. But we do know that about 73% in the study you mentioned also have fever. So most people who end up having COVID with diarrhea also have fever. Now, unfortunately, that also means about a quarter don't have fever. So some people can have diarrhea, but no fever. Although what we're usually seeing is there typically is concurrent respiratory symptoms, cough, shortness of breath, hoarse voice, chest pain, although not always. But diarrhea alone, with nothing else, with no, let's say, overwhelming fatigue, no fever, no loss of taste, no loss of smell, not skipping meals or having a low appetite, that alone probably is not COVID, probably not, just playing the odds. So those are just some considerations. And again, we could probably do a whole podcast just on trying to interpret these symptoms. Right, right. So following up on the diarrhea uh, issue a little bit, um, what do we know about how long does the virus last in the stool? And what does that mean for family members, for somebody who might have it? And what does that mean to our listeners who routinely perform colonoscopies? Oh, yeah. So another big, important topic. And so I mentioned earlier, the surface area of the gut we all know in GI is massive. It's, I think somebody told me it's like almost a tennis court worth of surface area. Uh, I think that, st that sticks in my head. So if you think about that, you've got this virus that can just take over this tremendous surface area. So it's no wonder that when it overwhelms the largest immune organ in the body, the intestinal tract, that it's going to take a while before the body can get that out. And it turns out from the data, it looks like it takes quite a bit longer to clear the virus out of the intestines than it does out of the lungs. Um, and there may be a lot of very interesting immunological and biological reasons for that, but clinically what it means is that the stool can stay positive for weeks after somebody has cleared the virus in their, in their lungs. And on average, about 11 to 12 days longer. Now, the big question is, does that mean it's infectious virus? Does that mean it's transmissible? And for the most part, we're assuming that it's probably not infectious. However, the CDC put a report up just recently from China where they did meticulous work to identify live virus in the stool of a patient with active COVID. So it has been found, live virus has been found in the stool. And you kind of think, well, why, why wouldn't it? Why would it suddenly just die the second it passes the anal verge when you've got somebody with active colitis, let's say, or enteritis, as opposed to somebody who's swallowing dead 
bugs up top and it passes through the whole GI tract and comes out dead. So I think we have to be very careful and continue to monitor this. In terms of colonoscopy, we have to be concerned. I, this is the easy answer to that. If somebody has COVID-19, I'm worried about both ends. I'm worried about both ends. I'm personally using an M95 if I'm going to be doing a procedure with somebody who's COVID-19 positive, but even if they have a high pretest probability, I'm worried about it during colonoscopy. Until we have further evidence to the contrary, which we don't yet have, I think it's as long as we have supplies, we should be using them. That's my opinion. Wonderful. And I think the American Journal of Gastroenterology has a couple of red section pieces and articles about how to wear positive uh, protective equipment. So following up on that too, Brandon, you mentioned that many of these patients may have gastritis or esophagitis or colitis. How do you treat these patients? Do you treat them differently? And do you think this will lead to long-term injury in the GI tract? Yeah, great questions. And I don't have the answers to how to treat them differently, but we are discovering that all of those manifestations have been described. And that's partly because ACE2 can present itself not just in the intestines. And we now know that intestinal metaplasia, so we recently looked at a report about intestinal metaplasia in the stomach, may itself increase ACE2 expression in the stomach and be a risk for COVID invading through that mechanism. So, you know, how do we treat them differently? I don't know. I think in the end, we have to treat them with supportive care like anyone else and hope it just clears. Uh, I don't know about long-term damage. We all know that the gut turns itself over uh, much faster than uh, other organs. And we, we don't see like the interstitial scarring in the lung as we do in the gut. I don't think we're seeing scarring, for example. This is not typically an invasive disease. Although we've seen colitis and we've seen other problems like ischemic colitis from thrombosis, but direct injury from the virus does not seem to be a scarring, fibrotic type of injury. What I am a little concerned about is whether there could be an uptick in post-infectious IBS, which is a whole other discussion, which is typically a post-bacterial. But we need to monitor and see if there's an uptick in GI symptoms as a result of this pandemic as well. Bren, you've already kind of touched on it, but for our listeners who do endoscopy, we're always so concerned about their safety and, of course, the safety of assisting personnel and patients. Could you just give us two or three quick tips about your approach as you uh, perform endoscopy in these patients who either suspected or known COVID-19? Yeah. And I'm not a true expert in a lot of this, so I would defer to some of the articles that we've published. But certainly the way we've been handling it in our hospital, uh, and people who are COVID positive, we're going to do an upper endoscopy. They'll intubate the patient. They'll allow a, a waiting period so that aerosolized particles can settle up to 15-minute wait time before we actually re-enter the room and initiate the procedure. And of course, wear uh, full PPE, including the uh, M95 mask. Be very careful. I think that's the bottom line. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. A good approach is to just assume that everybody's infected and then I think we're all more careful that way. Brendan, as we get ready to sign off, I think we both want to mention for our listeners that a lot of information is now available through the American College of Gastroenterology and their website. And of course, through our journal, the lots of lectures and podcasts and other bits of information. So our listeners should do that. This has been a great conversation. I know incredibly useful for our listeners. Um, any last thoughts? You know, I think keep the papers coming to the Red Journal and 
we're continuing to learn every day about this. This is hopefully a once in a lifetime experience, and we don't need to go through something like this again. But the scientific explosion that we've witnessed, not just from our journal, but every journal is critical. And as we've learned that we need to also be very careful about the validity of the data that we're publishing. Last week, there were some high-profile retractions from the Lancet New England Journal of Medicine. So certainly you and I and our entire editorial board are doing our very best to publish great research that we believe is valid, just like any other time. So I think from an editorial perspective, those are just some insights for our listeners of how we're thinking about this. But no matter what, it's all brand new information. And so some of this will prove to be true. Some of it may not but all of that is testable and we need to advance the science now. So it's been an interesting time as an editor, as I'm sure you would agree, to figure out how to call the wheat from the shaft, so to speak. All right, to our listeners, thank you for listening in today. We just heard from a world's expert on COVID-19. Brennan, thank you so much for all this great information. And as you point out, this is a rapidly changing field. So stay tuned for other podcasts and stay tuned to the journal. Thank you. Thanks for having me.